Before we get started, I just want to make a brief announcement about the state of the pod. We've been getting tons of amazing feedback from women, and it's become very clear to us that a lot of women are thirsty for this type of content. This is a niche in women's media that is desperately needed and has been neglected for a very long time. And we really want to be able to make more content. There's just one problem, and that's money. We would love to be able to quit our day jobs and work full-time on content creation. And the only thing holding us back is the fact that we got bills to pay, if I'm being totally honest. Long term, though, we would like to expand into other forms of media, such as video, TikTok, newsletters, ebooks, even like real physical books, and so on. And that's why we've set a new Patreon goal. As soon as we hit $10,000 monthly revenue, that will be enough for us to afford to quit our jobs and start working on growing FDS full time. Currently, our schedules only really allow us to post about 60 to 90 minutes of bonus content per month. And as a reward to our patrons for helping achieve this target, we will commit to posting more bonus content. So if you like FDS and you want us to grow and you want us to make more content, you can support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy. And for the next 48 hours, we'll be offering a limited time offer called Lurker Mode, where you can access the bonus content at a reduced price of $5.99 per month. Thank you so much to everyone who listened and shared to help us to get to where we are now. And I'm sure this is a sign of even greater things to come. Thank you. What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm your host, Ro. And I'm Savannah. And this is Lilith. And today we have a much-requested, much esteemed guest, Dr. Gail Dines. For most of our subbies and people who follow our our podcast, they'll already know her and she needs no introduction. But for uh, people who may be new, Dr. Gail Dines is a professor emerita at Wheelock College in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, Also the founder of Culture Reframed and also the author of Pornland, How Porn Has Hijacked Our Sexuality. Welcome, Gail. Pleasure. Thank you so much. So much. I'm so happy to be here. I always like to talk about pornography. Well, it's an honor to have you on the podcast, Gail. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So most of our audience is already porn critical, but for our newer audience, um, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yes, certainly. So let me tell you why I do this work to start with. You know, often those of us who are against pornography get called, you know, anti-sex, sex sex negative. And I do this because I'm pro-sex and sex positive. And I can't stand to see what pornography has done to sex. So I would begin by saying that if you want to be pro-sex, you have to be anti-porn. You can't be both pro-sex and pro-porn. The two don't go together. So what, you know, I've been doing this for well over 30 years. So there's many aspects of my work. But one of the things that I'm specifically interested in is the way that, you know, pornography as a discourse, as a set of images, as an industry is reshaping the notion of sexuality, sexual templates, heterosexual behaviors. And we'll talk mainly about heterosexual porn, but I can talk about gay and lesbian porn as well. But I think critically, when you think about the industry, it's mainly made up of heterosexual porn, although we don't really know 
um, the, if the guys were watching it, how they identify, but it's geared to heterosexual men. And it's really over the last 20 years since um, the internet became affordable, anonymous and accessible, the made porn affordable, anonymous and accessible, it's really driven demand to pornography. And overnight in 2000, we went from sort of soft to middle core to absolute hardcore. It was astounding to watch this change. It was like no middle ground. It was immediately what they call in the industry gonzo, which um, is really a shorthand for the hardcore porn. So the type of porn you see now for free on Pornhub is the type of porn that, say, just before the internet, you'd have to go to a porn shop, you'd have to be over 18, and you'd have to know somebody who carries such hardcore porn. This has now become mainstream. It's a click away. The average age of first viewing porn studies say around 11, but increasingly we're seeing younger and younger boys. And what's interesting, specifically, I think, for a lot of your listeners, is it used to be, you know, Boys would grow up and get a peek at their father or brother's playboy, you know, maybe masturbate to a bit here and there. But basically, you were kind of limited with how much access you had to porn. Today, there is no limit. And they're immediately catapulted into hardcore. You know, gone are the days of the centerfold of the, you know, young white woman bending over with a coy smile in a, in a cornfield. It's completely different. And what's interesting and what studies are showing is that men, as they kind of develop into adult are not leaving porn behind. They're taking it with them into their relationships and it's having a profound effect on relationships. We know that both from anecdotal evidence but especially peer-reviewed articles as well from multiple disciplines. So everything I'm going to be saying today, you know, that's around this stuff is going to be mainly based in the research because we have so much research on the effects. Amazing. Everything that you said there is so validating and so many women have been saying how you know, porn has negatively affected their relationships. And lots of guys are telling us that we're crazy or controlling or that, you know, porn is normal and healthy. And that if you have a problem with porn, you're anti-sex and like sex negative and all of that stuff. It's coming from men as well as the liberal feminist arm of a lot of mainstream media, um, especially in the States. Uh, We've done part of our, uh, our media analysis on the way that a lot of times women's magazines and women's media cloaks uh, over-sexualization objectification as feminist empowerment and how that actually a lot of times leads to dissatisfaction in relationships because it's not coming from a true place of expressive sexuality. It's coming from a place of performative sexuality for men and them trying to sell us, you know, products. If I have to hear that fucking word empowerment again, I think I'm going to have to throw a feminist fit, honestly. I agree. I I am so sick of this. We roast that all the time, yeah. (laughs) Uh, First of all, let me say this, the porn industry has a very well-oiled PR machine. When some guy is trying to groom you into porn, he's getting this from the porn industry, right? He's not thinking this up himself, by the way. He's being fed how to groom women and girls into porn. You know, and what, will you explain to me what is empowering about going onto a porn set, being anally, vaginally, already pounded away, being called a slut, a whore, a cum dunster, and a cunt, being ejaculated in the face, especially in the eyes, maybe getting, if you're lucky, a small amount of money, that image then going up onto Pornhub, the women never seeing a penny of it, and men all over the world jerking off to what was probably one of the worst experiences of your life. Can somebody please explain to me how that's empowerment? And what's interesting, we never talk about male empowerment, we talk about male power. 
And when men have power, that means they have economic power, legal power, um, social power. For women, our power lies in, you know, full bikini waxes, fucking any man that wants us to fuck him, giving blowjobs. Why do they get the real material power and ours becomes a pseudo-empowerment through becoming disposable sex objects for men? If we want power, we want the same type of power that men have, which is economic, social and legal power so that women no longer have to live as a subordinate sex class straight facts a <laughs> mic drop oh. preach <laughs> oh my god you mentioned the porn the porn lobby and i remember watching this clip with you and rashida jones talking about i think it was hot girls wanted and you're arguing with this one guy this old creepy looking guy who was saying mark kearns mark kearns yeah and he was saying like most guys don't watch violent porn which is a mm-hmm. fucking lie mm-hmm. And so can you tell me more about what it's like to, you know, what are some of the techniques that they use to sort of gaslight women? What are, what are some things to look out for? Well, the things to look out for is that, well, all the other girls are doing it. What's wrong with you? Uh, girls like this, are you a prude? Um, you know, trying to sort of isolate you where somehow you're abnormal, you're different, you're prudish if you don't want to be fucked in the ass by three guys. So I think it's really important for women to get a sense of themselves and rather than let these men tell them what to do. You know, we have set the bar so low for what a decent man looks like. You know, if he doesn't beat the shit out of you, he's a good guy. If he doesn't do this, you know, we need to actually really raise the bar because we're not doing men any favours either by really lowering this bar to such a degree. And I would say if any guy tries to pressure you into porn or doing porn sex, then you have to walk away. You absolutely have to walk away. I used to tell this to my students all the time. You have to close the door and walk away. You can explain the problem and if he doesn't listen, it's goodbye. You know, I mean, how many people of colour would spend their time hanging out with white racists? True. <laughs> you wouldn't. You'd walk away. So why do women spend their time trying to explain to misogynists why it doesn't feel good to be a fuck object? You know, we, we, we spend too much of our emotional energy trying to change men who won't be changed. Now, that doesn't mean to say there's not men out there who actually will have an aha moment and will change their behaviour. But for the others, really, this is such emotional energy on women. It's like we wash up after men, we cook after men, we clean up the messes, and now we have to do the emotional energy of trying to turn them into decent humans beings. I say enough already. I, can, I completely agree. That's FDS in a nutshell. That's, <laughs> That's FDS is... <laughs> in a nutshell. Because we get criticized all the time for our hardline stance on this. We say if a guy watches porn, he's undateable. Like, break up with him, mm-hmm. block and delete. Like, we, we say, like, you can maybe explain if you want, but you don't have to. It's not your job. Um, and in fact, it's just, like, a waste of energy to try, because most of them will just, like, argue with you and, like, gaslight you. They'll lie. <laughs> they'll lie. They'll, you know, it's, it's a waste of time, right? And so we say all the time, like, oh, just block and delete. Like, just break up with them. And so many people give us shit for that. But that, like, we have a professor here telling us that this is facts. <laughs> yes, we have a hashtag on our on our subreddit called Porn Sick Limp Dick, which got a lot of controversy when we posted it because uh, because in, in addition to all the things that you just said, it's just making a lot of these guys not being able not be able to perform sexually in real life situations because they're oh, they're so overstimulated uh, that they can't actually engage with you as a person when you're trying to have sex with them as a real live breathing uh, human woman, and that is affecting our relationships directly. Totally, and I used to hear. This- from my students all the time that you they felt like um a masturbation facilitator 
you know. And what's really interesting when one of the best interviews I ever heard with a guy who used porn and was reflecting on it, he said, porn taught me how to masturbate into a woman. Now, who wants to have sex with someone who's using you as a masturbation facilitator? You know, if men want to know what women want sexually, they're going to be very disappointed if they go to porn. Because, you know, this might be a surprise to some men, but when you stick your penis down her throat, she doesn't have an orgasm, right? The clitoris is not in the throat. Yes. (laughs) There's all these messages that come at these guys about what we want. And, and what happens is they, they really do become terrible sex partners because they're clueless, they're focused on getting off as quickly as they can, and, they, and because they think the women in porn like it. And by the way, I've interviewed so many women in porn who have been in porn, and they hate it. They hate every single minute. All this interviews you see with women who are in porn, I love my body, I do it. That's when they're in porn. Speak to women once they've left the porn industry. That's when things change dramatically. And they talk about it felt like rape, it felt like abuse, exploitation. They're not having a good time. And you know what's interesting? The men aren't either. Porn performers don't like doing what they're doing. But what's interesting is what you are meant to do is emulate porn performers who are actually pretending to have a good time. So what kind of sex is everyone having? You know, sex should be fun, creative. You should be the author of your own sexuality. You shouldn't let a bunch of creepy men in LA, like Mark Kearns, who I was on um, with Rashida Jones, why would you really want that, that gross guy to be the determinant of your sexual template? I mean, this is what is so ridiculous. And people often say to me, you know, um, it's so interesting. People say, if I don't use porn, this is men, what am I going to masturbate to? You know, I say, then what about your imagination, right? As long as it's not porn-fueled imagination, as long as it's not porn-fueled. But the other thing I have to say, to, to carrying on the food analogy, is porn is to sex what McDonald's is to food. It's the industrialization, commodification, and monetization of a real human desire that is then stolen from you, sold back to you, and looks nothing like the original desire. So, you know, and then so I would say, if you want to make hamburgers, fine, go home, experiment with different recipes, make hamburgers. But that's very different from supporting a multi-billion dollar fast food industry that is destroying the environment as well as, of course, making everyone fat and want salty food. So... What I would say is that let us become the authors of a fun, creative sexuality and let's relegate the porn industries to where they should be, which is the trash heap of the society. Yeah, that was another question that we have because a lot of people have a hard time imagining what a post-porn world would look like and or even if it's possible. Like, so, you know, could you maybe explain why, you know, why is it possible and how would we go about that? Well, remember, we've had a pre-porn world, Right. The people managed to have sex. I and mean, it wasn't great sex for most women, by the way. We know from the 1950s, you know, it was like kind of lay back and just let it happen. And in England, we used to say lay back and think of England, you know, um, why he did this to you. But I think now, given that women are demanding more and more that they are sexual beings who have a right to sexual pleasure, I think a post-porn world would be one in which women were seeing themselves to have a right to pleasure, were not there in the service of men sexually. And this would really make men become more creative because if women wouldn't tolerate what men do, which remember, a post-porn world would require also probably a post-patriarchal world, 
right, which is what we all dream of and hope for all the time, is that really thinking about what does sex look like that's built on not just relationships, but intimacy, connect, consent, connection, um, equality, all of those things. And I'm not saying you have to, you know, have sex with the same person all your life, or you, you know, or you shouldn't experiment. Of course you should. But at least in a way, and, you know, when I was growing up, it was a pre-porn world. And I was thinking about you know, because I often do this work, what it was like. And first of all, I grew up in a quite a small Jewish community, um, and they were not kind of, they were, didn't feel perpetrated, boys. They, you felt safe for them. So you really got a chance to sexually experiment in a way that felt safe and connected, and you could then move on to some other guys, but you never felt like you had to perform for the guys. So I hear my students talk all the time, and, you know, most of them don't have orgasms. They don't enjoy sex. All they can think about is, is he enjoying it, and does my stomach look too big in this position, or does my butt look too big? They extend they kind of become the external observers to their body as they're having sex. They're sort of disembodied during sex because they're so concerned they look the right, they look properly, they look like they should, and that they're performing on him the kind of sex exactly that he wants that he's seen in his in porn. So one of the um, things that I found when I was just researching your work and looking at the response to it is a lot of the pro-porn feminists seem to think the answer to this is not to, uh, not what you suggested, but to push for more and more quote unquote feminist porn. And uh, they, they also often denigrate your work as just like, oh, well, she's just an anti-porn feminist and there's not enough evidence to support what she's saying. Oh, she's just a swerve. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. swerve. Or and 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 furthermore, I mean, the other difficulties with doing this work is that there's not always a good control group because there's so many men that watch porn. <laughs> so, a lot of times when they've tried to do hard studies on porn, they they literally cannot find men who have not watched it to use as a control group. So, what's your response to that? What kind of research have you seen? Well, first of all, let's get just get rid of the feminist porn argument. You can either be a feminist or a pornographer, you can't be both. Okay, pornography in its production and consumption is violence against women. And I don't care if you brand yourself a feminist, it doesn't work like that. We have no right to monetize and commodify women's bodies. That's whether you're a pornographer living in L.A. or whether you're Erica Luss living in Berlin. It's the same thing. So I do not buy this ethical or feminist porn. You cannot take an utterly bankrupt system and think you can make it better. You have no right to be the voyeur of somebody at their most vulnerable, who you do not know. You don't know her wishes, her wants, her desires, her aspirations, her history, nothing. Why should you have the right of looking at her while you are clothed or semi-clothed and she is at her most vulnerable? So I am. do not believe there can be such a thing as feminist porn. If you want to make your own images and keep them within your own um, community or your own relationship, that's fine. That's none of my business. But once you start commodifying them and wanting to make a profit, then you become tapped into the mainstream porn industry, whether you like it or not. And it is about the monetization of women's bodies. So no, I do not agree with the terms feminist or ethical porn. I think it's an oxymoron. The thing around the third wave feminists, I think what's happened with this pro-porn is that they are actually neoliberals. They were not brought up at a time when radical ideas were in the air. They were often born during the Reagan-Thatcher era or the post-Reagan-Thatcher era where, you know, sort of um, rampant individualism was the key. So really, I joined 
a feminism that says, you know what, even if I'm okay, and I have to say I'm very okay, I've got race privileges, class privileges, I've got a lot of privileges, I'm fine, but if my sister over there is not okay, then I will walk mountains to make her okay, because you know what, we talked about women's liberation. We, our job is to liberate all women, not just a lucky few who happen to have some privilege. The problem with third wave um, neoliberal feminism, which is more the pro-porn feminism, is if I'm okay and I like it, then fuck you, sister over there. It's your fault. It's not a notion of collective liberation. It's a notion of in individual empowerment. And let's be honest, individual empowerment happens to the most privileged of women. It happens to the whitest, most wealthy women with the most choices. So this is why, as a radical feminist, I do not buy into third wave, and I call it faux feminism, because it's not about sisterhood, it's not about liberation, it's not about the collective well-being of women. It's really about individual women and what they're doing. So I think we need to step back a little bit, because this is really part of a wider argument as where is feminism going. And I don't like it where it's going, I have to be honest. And to call us, you know, swerves like sex works, as if we are against women who work in the sex industry. We do this work because we don't want our sister to be sexually exploited in the sex industry. We're not against them. We see them as our sisters. And we want to make a world where women don't have to be sexually exploited as a way to feed their children or to put money or to put food on the table. So that's a complete ridiculous upside down view of reality. So I think ultimately what we have to think about is how do we get young women to really think about pornography, prostitution, all of these things in a way that is about the collective liberation and well-being of all women and not about just you as an individual. That's the hardest, and especially the United States, which is founded on this notion of individualism. And the research, let me talk to the research. There is over 30 to 40 years of research, empirical research from multiple disciplines that show the same thing. When you're in social science, as in any science, you go with the weight of the evidence. Now, I can find you junk science, just as I can find you a piece of junk science that says climate change isn't happening. You always got some junk science. That's why you need to go with the weight of the evidence. And without question, when people argue there is no research, we have longitudinal research now, which shows causation, where they're following boys and they're holding all variables constant except for their use of pornography. And what they're finding as they move into adulthood is that the more boys view porn, the more likely they are to sexually abuse, the more likely they are to rape, sexually harass, coerce girls into sexting, uh, become themselves perpetrators, all these things. And these are actually causation, not correlation. So anyone who argues that there's no research is simply willfully ignoring it or just doesn't know about it. Yeah, we actually get people who say the opposite. They'll say like, well, the research says that porn is amazing and healthy. And we even had one feminist we were arguing with, quote unquote feminist, who was saying that the sex offender registry is anti-feminist and that if you're a good feminist, you should be like a, a pro abolishing the concept of the sex offender registry and will point to junk science to quote unquote prove that. So like they've lost the plot. Like help, basically <laughs> they lost the plot. Like help us out. Like how do we respond to these crazy it's, people? It's really well, let's just talk about the sex offender. There are some people on there who shouldn't be, I have to say, right? Sometimes it, it's, it's too cast a wide net. For example, girls who sexed, Young girls who sexed to um, who were under eighteen, um, sexed to other people can be called sex offenders because they're sending child pornography. 
Yeah, so people like that shouldn't be on the sex... But that's the thing. Like, we... Our argument is, like, if there's problems with the sex offender registry, we should change it or reform it and not abolish it all. Exactly. Not abolish it. Yeah, not abolish it. Though that's a wacko argument. You know, why bother? I would say to that person, you know what? You send me the evidence to read this. Instead of me fighting with you, first send me, and I often do this when people argue with me. I say, you know what? If you disagree with me, send me the um, links to the studies. Let me read them and I'll get back to you. Of course, I never get any emails and links and anything like that. But that's the way. Don't don't spend your time defending it. Ask for the studies so you can read them and assess them yourself. (laughs) And believe me, you won't have to read any studies because no one will send you any. Most of them just send us, like, a YouTube link to some idiot talking. <laughs> oh, well, that's really scientific. That's really uh, robust science for your YouTube, you know? Professor Dines, I had a question, um, because in my dating travels, I've come across men who are somewhat in denial about the extent of their porn addiction. They'll say, oh, I only watch it a little bit, or I'll watch it when, you know, my wife's out of town or when she's on her period or stuff like that. Do you think there is such a thing as... Um, you know, porn in moderation. Yes. No, we know that not all men who use porn are addicts, right? That's That we certainly know, of course. The question becomes not are all men addicts, because that's an easy answer, no. It's can you masturbate to porn on a somewhat, you know, once, twice a week or whatever and come away unchanged? That's the issue, and the answer is no. You cannot. The porn is such a thud to the body. Just think about what's engaged in the body. Cognitive, emotional, the limbic system, your dopamine releases. I mean, when you are masturbating and um, orgasming to porn, it is an incredible shift in sexual templates, in the way that the neurons fire and wire, in the way that you develop ideas and attitudes. You cannot walk away unchanged from porn. Will you walk away a predator, a rapist? Probably not, right, if you're not using it regularly or you've not got other issues going on. But you will be changed in a very profound way. And the question that these men have to ask themselves is really, is this who you want to be? And this is very interesting, you know, because I lecture in many universities. And what's so interesting is I get at the front row these guys who come in ready to do battle. You can see, you know, that there's this smouldering kind of rage coming off them as I come on the stage. They've, they're sitting there with their feet up, their baseball caps turned backwards, and, and really they're ready to sit. And then they think, you know, what can this middle-aged woman, what the fuck has she got to say about me and porn? What does she know? And what happens is very interesting because I'm on the stage and I'm above so I can see. And you know what? Within 10 minutes of me talking if they could reach out and touch me they would it's like at last somebody is saying i'm not a vile disgusting pig for using porn because i say you know you are victims of this industry they are out to get you they are out to turn you into life support systems for erect penises and i believe you are worth more in fact you know what feminists are men's best friends we all believe men are worth more than the pornographers say otherwise we wouldn't do this work and at the end these guys are lining up some of them in tears begging me to get them resources to get off pornography. So, you know, I I have to believe doing this work that these men, and it's very interesting because I show porn in my talks, just stills, not films, but what happens when men uh, and boys are aroused and masturbating to porn, they're not in any position to do a robust deconstruction of the text that they're masturbating to. 
You understand they want to get off and they want to get off as quickly as possible. So what's interesting is when I show the images of porn and read the text, this is probably the first time these guys have ever looked at the porn they're masturbating to without an erection. And it, it really disturbs them. Because when I explain what goes on in porn and they know they've been masturbating to this, they shift. It's, oh, my God, is this what I've been looking at? And I remember one guy saying, you know, sometimes after he's, he's come to the porn, he's masturbated to it, and he ejaculates. He said, um, I look at what I was jerking off to, and I think, oh, my God, it's gross. So I think on many ways, this is doing a job on men as well. This is doing a number on men. And again, I want to say to all the men listening, feminists are your best friends. If we did not believe in your capacity for humanity, we'd all go and live in a cave or go off to a desert island together and leave you away. We don't. We do this work because we do believe, not all, by the way, there are guys who need to be dropped into a desert island and left to fight it out with each other. <laughs> I do say that. Ah, oh, preach. Take all the rapists, <laughs> take all the murderers and abusers, put them on an island, they can duke it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let them go and do to each other, leave us alone. Just leave us and the children alone as well. But, you know, and I have to say, the, the most humbling experience of my radical feminist life, because I, I had it really down when I was in 1920. Women were good and men were bad. It was very simple, right? And then, you know what happened when, it, when I was 25? It all got fucked up because I gave birth to a boy. And suddenly, my dichotomous thinking didn't hold up because why? The thing I love most in the world was this little boy who was born with every capacity for love and humanity and intimacy. <laughs> and I'm happy to say his first language is feminism, so he's still like that in his 30s, okay? So it is possible. He is. He's, he's, he's astounding. I mean, he sees things... He sees misogyny before I do because his first language was... Um, and would you like me to tell you a story about... Please do. Yes, we'd love to see yeah. it. So let, let me give you some hope out there. So when he was at university, um, he was in town with some friends for a drink, and he found out they were going to a strip club. And he turned back and went back to his dorm room. And I said to him, you know, why did you do this? And I thought I was going to get the mom violence against women, blah, blah, blah. You know what he said to me, which really was so profound. He said to me, you know what, mom? He said, I've only got this one body to live in. And I don't think I could have stood to live in this one body if I would have taken part in exploiting a woman. And I thought, that's it. You want the moral compass to come from them. And he had internalized a moral compass of feminism as a male. Not He wasn't giving his mum's lecture here. He was telling me how he felt. So it is possible. Do not tell me men are not capable of this. And I've been married to the same guy for like 300 years, and he's the most pro-feminist man I've ever seen as well. So I'm surrounded by a lot of good men. I believe in that, which is not to say there's a lot of terrible men out there that women should avoid, right, because they've been socialized by this patriarchal system to be misogynist. And some you will not bring back, but some you might. We hope so. Anyway, that's the job of one of the jobs of feminism. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that, um, Professor Dines, because I think a lot of um, the hate we get towards the female dating strategy as well is that we hate men and that we, you know, we want them all to die. And it's sort of, Oof. it doesn't make sense because why would we have... Why would we talk about dating them if we want them to die? Like, bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of an on that, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So thank you so much for saying that, um, because you, yeah, you put that in, 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 you know, such a good way. And it's nice to know that, that men aren't completely 
irredeemable. But we couldn't live with that. You know what? We 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 couldn't stand to believe that because where would we go from there as as activists That's and feminists? True. It would be over. You know. I think we do need to hold them accountable and not. And I don't think we should be nice to them, right? We're not. Yes. <laughs> I don't think we should be nice to them. I agree with that. <laughs> no, we're not asking for our liberation here. We are demanding it, and we will do whatever it takes to get it. Right. We're not saying, please, you know, pretty please here, please free us and liberate us. No, we are going to take it. So you better make sure that you shape up as men, because really, you don't want it to get nasty that we have to fight to the degree that we're ready to fight. And could you tell us more, Professor Dines, about um, feminist parenting? Because we get a lot of flack saying that, like, we get people accusing us of being uh, like child abusers to our sons, saying, like, I guess when they uh, they think of feminist parenting, they just think of like a bunch of women standing in a circle around a boy yelling like shame shame you should hate shame. yourself you should hate I yourself hate you. men are evil oh <laughs> you're so, evil yeah so low you, value low value man yeah like, so how oh, that is so ridiculous we also believe we had an episode we just recorded an episode yesterday actually with the early childhood ed- educator um talking about like how to raise feminist boys and so i was wondering if you know what do you have to add to that idea like how did you go about raising your son to be a feminist well first of all it was um my husband and i doing it together because very important that he see he had the role model of a man who is pro-feminist right because i mean you can't when you're battling with them if you're in heterosexual and you're with a man and you're battling with how to raise a son in a feminist way that is going to cause a shitload of problems so how we did it was after, first of all no great lectures during the last thing kids want a great lectures right to be lectured at so one of the things we did it was just from a very early age just we introduced words like sexism misogyny so my son would come home at four complaining that his friends had been sexist today and he had to say something and then he would he would know these concepts so another time i walked in on him and he's watching um this is like five years old and he's watching national geographic and he's pointing at the television and he's shaking his head i said what's the matter he said they keep saying man and his environment what about women and their environment so i mean these were things he recognized so early on so what we did was just used very teachable moments so we'd be driving and best way to do it with boys is in the car or biking because fate eye to eye doesn't always work so we would be driving i said oh look at that picture what's wrong he'd go oh it's really sexist look at how her body looks she's got no clothes on or something like that and then we would talk about his body so as a joke one day he came home and said something like you know like the little boys get obsessed with their penis in patriarchy so we said i'm going to put my i'm going to sit here and i'm going to put my penis over there because it's so big big and i said listen honey you know what i said your penis is connected to your beautiful head and your beautiful heart so you can't make any decisions about your penis because it's always connected to your head and your heart so you're all one beautiful body so just little things like that, and then move on to a snack not a whole lecture, right? Then other times he'd come home and say things. Like he wanted to go with his friends to see those, you know, horrible summer blockbuster movies where a white man saves the world. You can't make your kid an outlier. So we would let he would go and then but we had an agreement in the family that within two days of him going, we had to have a discussion about foot moving. So he'd come home and say, Okay, so what do you think? could have happened before it turned into a gunfight what other ways do you think they could have come to some agreement before it got to and then we deconstruct movies together so then when he was 12 and 13 you know because you've only got till they're about 10 or 11 they think you're the smartest person in the world and around 11 or 12 you're the most the biggest idiot that ever walked the earth so you've got a front row so then he'd go to the movies 
and he sits down with his friends and we discuss it. And he'd come home and I'd say, how was the movie? You know, it was one of those awful at that time, Bruce Willis movies or Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he'd say, it was really cool, Mum, I loved it. I said, great. I said, how would, have I li- would I have liked it? He said, Mum, you would have hated it. And I'd say, why? And out of his mouth would come this incredible feminist analysis. But you know what? It was his mother's, not his. But really, he was sitting there with a dual brain of a 12-year-old enjoying watching the movie and of a 12-year-old deconstructing it from a feminist perspective and as long as he could use argue at that age that it was his mother's analysis and not his he was free to really go for it so you've got to step back a little bit and let them have some freedom because you know what once you front loaded they come back they really do it gets absolutely melded into who they are and then they respect their own bodies they have a sense of themselves and you know what it's the opposite of boy hating to bring them up as feminists boys are not doing well in this culture they are more likely to die of suicide they are more likely to die of risky behaviors that masculinity is not healthy for anyone not boys not girls not the planet nothing so we are really helping i think bringing up a boy as a feminist is the biggest gift you can give to him absolutely i'm thinking him up in toxic masculinity i think is terrible and i feel so sorry for those poor little boys where you see their parents screaming at them you know to be more macho and more boyish and these poor little boys don't fit into that mold most of them don't they get scrunched into it not by the parents by the culture until they end up really kind of truncated human beings really truncated where their emotional life has been almost wiped off the map you mentioned you and your husband raising your son together and so you know we say all the time like you should focus on finding a high quality man so that when you raise children together you're on the same team and can do a great job of raising you know your kids together so how did you can you tell us how you met your husband like what how did you vet for him how did you vet him how did you find out that he was a a good man i didn't it was an accident do you know what i decided the goddess smiled on me that day it was a i met i remember me he was we're both 19 at university and i saw him and at first thing i thought he has the kindest face i've ever seen and you know what i was right 40 odd years later I can say the same thing. He is the gentlest, kindest male. And he did not grow up in a pro-feminist family, believe me. His parents did not have him married to a radical feminist. That was not their idea of what their son should be married to. You should be married to a nice, I'm Jewish, but a nice Jewish girl who stays home and makes some chicken soup on a Friday night. You know, that was their image. Alas, he's the one who makes the chicken soup on a Friday night, nice. you know. <laughs> um, but it was an accident. But what was very interesting was when we were dating, he had the heart, but he didn't have the cognitive understanding. And I remember we were at a dinner party with friends. You know, we were in college, and we made these this fancy dinner party once. And there was eight couples. It was very, you know, heterosexual, four men, four women. And halfway through the dinner, we noticed that we're the only ones left at the table. Well, the other three couples have gone to have sex, and we're fighting with each other over feminism and everyone else is having sex and we are having this blazing argument about because he didn't really get it in the beginning although he felt it and i turned around and i said to him um, his name's david people know who he is i don't mention my son's name but i'll mention his name and i said to him david if you want this relationship to go any further then you have to agree that my civil rights are not up for negotiation and they were equal to yours And he turned around and he said, God, you're right. You're absolutely right. And that was it. 
finished. And he has been my rock. I mean, you know, we even work together. He's a, he's a professor of economics and his area is mainly in climate change. But he's now become an expert in the porn industry. And we write together on the business model of the porn industry. So I don't think this is where he thought he'd be married to a woman who spends her life looking at porn either. But it turns out he's been by my side the whole time. And what's about a good man is they not only know when to be by your side, they know to be, when to be in front of you and when to stand behind you. They know that. And I have to say, you know, I'm a radical feminist. I do this work. You know, as you can tell, I don't, I, I don't sit on what I think. I'm in your face. And I don't know how I managed to get so lucky to be a radical feminist and end up with a man who actually completely supports me. He's married a strong woman, not to destroy her, but to make her stronger, which is very unusual, very unusual. And what I'm saying to the listeners most importantly, there are that look, these men are not falling from the trees, let's be honest, right? But if you've and, and most men you are gonna have to work with, you're not gonna find one who comes to you fully, you know, developed as a feminist and understanding. But if you can work with them and you have to decide how much work you're willing to put in. And if this is not somebody who's going to be in your life very long, then don't bother to spend it if you time. But if you think this is someone who's going to be in your life, let me tell you, those times that him and I did not have sex but stood across the table from each other arguing around feminism was so much more important than having sex. We've got plenty of sex later on when we figured out that this is going to be a feminist relationship. The most important thing was making it clear, first and foremost, that if this is going to continue, these are the ground rules and they're non-negotiable. I have to say, I've seen a lot of uh, men start coming around on the porn issue, especially on Reddit. There's a, a growing community called r slash nofap. Um, and they, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of men who are now recognizing that porn has had a negative influence on their lives because I think for the last two generations who have grown up with the internet, a lot of them started watching porn at single digit ages. And so they've developed a dependency on it that it's now, you know, as they're getting older and, and they're starting to cognitively understand that it's uh, having a negative effect on them. I, I find this interesting because I think about 10 years ago, especially when your book came out, it was, it was met with such backlash. Um, but now it seems like the ideas are starting to take hold in men. Have you noticed that trend? Yes. I've absolutely, look, I think we We've polarized. We've got those guys who are digging into their porn even more, and we've got those guys who are deciding this is not the way I want to live. And certainly that NoFap has got a huge amount of following. There's also Reboot Nation by Gabe Deem that has got a lot of followers. I think they're beginning to realize what porn is doing to them. And, but you know what the problem is? Is that the Women's Studies Academy has been hijacked by the pro-porn feminists. And really, this would be a place where men could learn, and women, of course, but let's talk about men at the moment, where men could learn about the harms of porn. And unfortunately, what they're doing is these folk feminists in the academy are giving them a pass to use porn in their sort of pro-porn position. So I think that's, and I think these women are being so, these academic women are being so unfair to younger women who have to live with the fallout of men getting a pass to use porn. And I want to give an example of this, if I may. So when Pornland came out, and actually it was very interesting. I got a ton of people from the porn industry writing to me telling me, God, you've got it so right. Let me tell you my story. I had tons of interviews following Pornland with um, people in the porn industry, the performers, the producers, the directors. But let me tell you something, a very interesting story. So it got selected at the Sydney Writers Festival in Australia. So I went out there and I have to say, it was probably the hardest two weeks of my professional life. 
because the pro-porn lobby in Australia was waiting for me. And they followed me around to every single lecture, radio and TV show I did. So the first thing um, I had to do was a um, for the Writers' Festival was a gig talking about pornography. And they put me on a panel with four pro-porn women, some of them academics, and me. So I was, and the, the worst one was the facilitator, right? So I was battling it out like crazy. And I, so there was four against one. And they were going on about how great porn was and how empowering. Anyway, at one point, and this, now you have to just, just set the setting. There was over a thousand people in this room. I couldn't see out. There were so many. The spotlights were on us. All you got a sense of the energy of a thousand people. And at one point, this was, I think it was the facilitator turned to me and said, Gail Dines, you've got no research. You've only got anecdotes. By the way, I had all the research with me, but it didn't matter. But she said, you've only got anecdotes. And about to open my mouth to start arguing about the research, and at the back of the room, I couldn't see a young woman stands up and says, I'm an anecdote. And then another one. And then suddenly the room is standing up with women screaming, I'm an anecdote. I'm an anecdote. Because these women had no clue what lives were like for young women, and the young women were fighting back. And it was a wonderful, wonderful moment to see that. That's, That's powerful. So powerful. Yeah, powerful. It was powerful to be a part of it and to see their rage. All of these women who were on the panel were in their 40s and 50s, heterosexual, married, academic. They didn't know what life is like there for young women trying to navigate their way through this porn-filled culture. We've we've captured a lot of that audience as part of uh, as part of female dating strategy, and that has been very very frustrating because we've been covered in the media, and uh, we've a lot of our support has come from um, somewhat conservative or at least moderate cultural critics, but like the the liberal side of it is all out attack on us, like all out attack on our criticisms of BDSM, all out attack on our criticism of porn in general, and uh, yeah, I can't help but feel that a lot of it comes from uh, just what you said is uh, there's two factions. There's the, the older, the old, older guard of feminists who just do not understand the ubiqui ubiquitousness of porn culture. And they were even criticizing a lot of uh, millennials and Gen Z and our response to the Me Too movement because they felt like the things that we would bring up were like, oh, this isn't real assault or like, this is like a uh, you're making a big deal of nothing. Yeah. Wow. 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 Of, yeah, exactly. Because they don't understand that it's not even that it's just one incident. It's just the volume of incidents because of how ubiquitous it is in the culture now because of porn. It's not unusual to have guys like grab you, choke you, slap you, you know, do pornify things. No, they no, don't understand. Mainstream now. Yeah. And so FDS has been integral in pushing back on that. But it, I mean, it, it does feel like we're up against a massive machine of both the media and academics on this. Can I just say, I love you. Oh, thank you. I love you too, Gail. You are doing such fantastic work. Honest to God, you are doing the goddesses' work here because so many young women think they're going nuts. You know, once this is over, I am going to spread the word about you everywhere because you are a lifesaver. Do you know, women come up to me saying this. I'm so alone. I'm so... I, I, I didn't even know you existed. So I am going to be your biggest fans. I'm going to spread it everywhere I can because this is so important because I meet so many young women who are so isolated. But let me, let me give a sort of international um, level here. This is very true. 
of the United States and the United Kingdom. It is not true of Southern and South America, right? Let me explain why. I travel to Brazil, I've traveled to Colombia, I give lectures in Argentina, I go all over the globe. And what is astounding, I'm gonna give you an example in Brazil. So I gave, I was in Brazil just, uh, I think was it two years ago, um, and I did like lots of lectures. And what was stunning to me was the radical feminist anti-porn came out in their droves all in their 20s, all in their 20s. The, when normally in the United States and UK, it's older women. In the, and in one point when I was speaking in Sao Paulo, I put out on my Facebook that I'm in Sao Paulo. I've got this day free. I'm willing to do, you know, a discussion with radical feminists wherever you are and we'll book a room. Do you know, we booked a room for 50. We had 250 turn up. Some flew into Sao Paulo and I'd say everyone in that room was under 30. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm so impressed by. A lot of our followers are from Latin America. And I'm so proud of our sisters there who are, yeah, in their 20s and are radical feminists. And I'm like, that's amazing. Totally. You know, you know what it is in a way here? It's the ones who get access to the media and get heard tend to be the more privileged. Yeah. Oh, yes. And that's where you, I think you get this problem is that they're speaking from their own life experiences. They have not got the... I don't know whether it's the theoretical understanding or the lived experience, but to understand that how you experience life, even if you are in your 30s and 40s and have navigated your way through the porn culture, that means shit for the average 20-odd-year-old who has got to deal with these guys. And I, I don't know what's missing here is why these older women who have, you know, often are not even dating or have got uh, with somebody, why are they putting young women in this terrible situation and not having an ounce of empathy, because I would hear from my students, you know, just what it was like out there, what a nightmare, and how many of them would tell me about, they start by saying they had a bad night last night, didn't go well. Turns out it was they'd been raped, you know, but they, they didn't want to turn that. And, and once women, under, well, you know, and I've been on the same uh, college for over 30 years, and my door was constantly open, because why... Women who I didn't even teach at the college would come to me with their rape stories because at last somebody would listen to them and not think it's your fault because you got drunk or it's your fault because you went into the room with him. And sometimes, you know, I would actually have a line outside of my office with young women um, wanting to doing intakes at the rape crisis centre on my office phone because they didn't want to do it on their own. I mean, that's how bad it was. And I am so angry at these older women and some of the third wave younger feminists who have completely thrown their sisters under the bus and their daughters under the bus. Yeah, we call these liberal fairy tales where, (laughs) yeah, liberal fairy tales, that's a phrase we use a lot where, you know, the, they're talking about this theoretical, like academic, if we lived in a perfect world where everyone was consenting and everyone was fair and there were no misogynists and blah, 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 blah. But the thing is, is we don't fucking live in that world. Okay. The reality on the ground for women is completely different. And so many of what these academics and like, I mean, I went to university too, right? Like I, you know, I I like, (laughs) I'm not, uh, it's not like, oh, stupid women or uneducated women are, are uh, 
you know, anti-porn or something. I don't know. Like they've created this weird thing where like, oh, if you're a real intellectual like me, you're pro-porn or you're, you know, do this and that. Right. And so if you don't agree with me, you're not an intellectual or something. I don't know. So, so, but we call these liberal fairy tales where they, you know, they're talking about a world that, you know, if everything was great and perfect, then it would work maybe but we don't live in that world. And so we have to interact with the world as it is right now. Totally. Yeah, and they, and they they do ignore the working class a lot. And that's actually been another criticism we've had is that like uh, they, they live in a world where their idea of equality is based on a white collar uh, workforce mm. versus, mm. you know, for people who are in blue and pink collar jobs in which like gender negotiations are way more complicated and the idea of equity is a little bit more complicated because you're not dealing with a person that's working the same kind of, you know, with, with blue collar work, it's, you know, it privileges male physical strength with pink collar work. It tends to privilege women working um, in more nurturing or more caretaking Mm -hmm. professions. Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of women exist and it, it does feel like they flat out ignore that to have this like fairy tale idea of perfect gender, like gender neutral, gender balance, gender equality and sexual equality that just does not play out for women who don't work in these very privileged, very niche places. Yeah. Exactly. And, and can I add to that? It's really interesting because we talk about the academy. Is I have to say the worst places to go to try and give over analysis of uh, porn as violence against women is the IVs and the top colleges. If I'm going to some community college in Iowa or Idaho or even in Massachusetts, you don't get this pro-porn position. It's really the IVs where it comes at you the most. And again, it's because no accident these are the most privileged, but you do not see it in colleges where you've got, you know, many working class women. And remember one thing, you know, working class women need to be much street smarter. Money buys you the privilege to be stupid. (laughs) If you've got a lot of money, you can buy, you don't need to know how to do things because you pay people to do them for you. Whereas if you need to do everything on your own, you know, you cannot afford not to be realistic have your eyes wide open and be strategic about how you live your life because life is so difficult so i think that's a critical part here and sometimes often when i'll go to a you know ivy university and i get a really particularly stupid awful question i think to myself you've got to have a phd to ask such a question you know only a phd can ask that question (laughs) yeah Yes. Oh my God. We were saying the same thing. Why are PhD people so fucking stupid? Because you're taught not to feel. You're taught. You're t- and also remember to get a job, you have to, you cannot get published if you're anti-porn. It's almost impossible to get published. So what happens is, I mean, I would not, if I was now going on the job market, I would never get a job with my politics. A left, anti-porn, um, radical feminist, forget it. So today what's happened is you can't get published. Publication is your seat to tenure. Um, you are excluded from the academy. You are ridiculed. The very way you cannot do your work, basically. So what you see is, a, I think, a lot of women crumbling or those who are anti-porn, and I understand this, stay quiet because they, this is their livelihood. They need to get tenure or keep their job. So, you know, the academy has really become a kind of policing institution for this kind of thing. Yeah, I had so many issues with that when I was in in school as well, where, you know, 
oh, we're a campus of, you know, free ideas and free thought and stuff. But really, in reality, there's only a very narrow set of ideas that, you know, and and, and I learned it very early on in school, if I wanted to get good grades, I had to just regurgitate whatever the professor was saying. Well, that's outrageous. That's outrageous. You know, because I would say to my students, you don't have to agree with me, but you have to make really good arguments if you disagree and bring up the research. But nobody gets brownie points in my class for agreeing with me. You get brownie points for making good, solid scientific and theoretical arguments so that you become a thinker and a critic you know and i had some students not many because after taking a class with me most of them were anti-porn but i had a few who still were and that was fine as long as they could make arguments for it and you know that was okay but you really want to create free thinking intellectuals who have the courage to go against the hegemonic thinking that's really what that's really what progressive pedagogy is is you bring up the hegemony the dominant ideology you give them the tools to deconstruct it and think of a counter hegemonic discourse i honestly think they're afraid uh, even even outside of academia academia is because so much of the media hires from the same kinds of schools and the same kinds of thinkers that a lot of times we we see um, magazines that are geared towards young women that often have young women writing for them, but they're re- regurgitating the same kinds of ideas that you'll hear at a lot of like Ivy liberal arts colleges because they know they won't get hired as a journalist or, uh, you know, the pro porn lobby is always uh, a lucrative uh, advertising market. It's so powerful. Like, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, you know what else is very interesting because I deal with the media all the time and I have to say, you know, when I have time with journalists, young women, and we talk, and then they talk about their lives. I, I, I almost caused a mini revolution at Cosmopolitan. Oh my gosh, tell us this story. I'm dying to hear it. <laughs> so I'm not going to mention any names, but there was a group, there was one woman particularly, who was uh, young, but really felt that porn wasn't okay. And we spent a long time in the interview, she brought others on. So they formed a little group to start putting in anti-porn um, stuff in and this was a few years ago now I haven't seen them lately and I wonder if they got fired but they were writing to me and I was helping them figure out stories and stuff about how to get it in 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 ways that it would be sort of it would look it would be on the down low kind of thing but at least they would get anti-porn and they were great and they were so frustrated with Cosmopolitan let me tell you but they you know they have these are top jobs when you're looking to be a journalist I've even had you know one of the worst is Vice magazine oh, oh my god yeah they roasted us oh my god (laughs) they must hate you right they hate me they hate us oh yeah but you know what's really interesting i've got friends at vice and i have helped them figure out ways so there's been a few articles in vice where i've sort of taken a more marxist critical approach to the porn industry and this has really interested a few of the journalists so there's some you can get hold of so i mean and then i get the journalists who call up and say, so Gail Dines, um, you're an anti-porn uh, Christian uh, book burner, uh, right-winger. And I say, well, actually, I'm a left-wing radical feminist Jew, so you've got a few things wrong here. They slam the phone down on me. They literally, the phone goes, because they realise now they haven't got me in that little pace they want to put me. You know, I, 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 you know, I did my PhD on the Marxist theory of culture applied to pornography. 
How are you going to put me in the right wing book burning? Plus, you know, I'm Jewish. Jews do not tend to have an issue around sex, right? We have lots of issues, believe me. We're very neurotic people, but we do not tend to be that neurotic around sex, okay? So, I mean, they, they can't. And so when they can't pigeonhole you to get rid of you, really, sometimes the phone is literally slammed down on me. I love a good Marxist analysis. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. Well, you can't, you can't understand porn without understanding Marxist analysis of capitalism. It's, I mean, that's, that's where sort of my husband and I really write about is to understanding the role of capitalism in pushing forward the porn industry and the way that porn is actually capitalism par excellence, right? You, you know, Marx said, so interestingly, you know, like during the Industrial Revolution, I don't know how he understood this, but he said capitalism will sink into every single nook and cranny of your life. How did he know that then? And now here we have the most private, intimate parts of our life, our sexuality, commodified by patriarchal capitalism. How did he know that was going to happen? Brilliant. You know, you read Marx and you think, this guy had like, he must have had a crystal ball into the future because I don't know how he understood what was going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I also, I wanted to ask you about, you know, on the topic of like academia, one of the, the arguments I hear is, you know, the, Oh, being against porn means you're anti free speech. And that like, if you care about free speech, you should, you should be fine with porn or something along that, those lines. So like, so what's the, how do you counter the free speech argument? Well, I don't, I say, I completely believe in free speech, which is why I don't think that pornographers should have stolen the speech around sexuality and, porno- and, and relationships. Who's, who has, stolen the narrative here who is the dominant um partner in writing the narrative about sex in our culture it's the porn industry using its billion dollars to shut us all down i wish i had free speech i would love free speech okay i want as much speech as the pornographers have Get, then we've got free speech they use that argument because those with free speech shut us up by putting us by making us silent because we don't have the dollars speech is not free it is the most expensive commodity you can buy look we can do shows like this which are great but i can't get into the new york times i can't get the same reach as Pornhub. that takes money so i would say let's put your money where your mouth is and give us free speech give us the reach because when you say free speech you don't mean the freedom to speak you mean the capacity to be heard and nobody gets heard like the porn industry Yes. Professor Dines, I just wanted to circle back quickly and ask, because I'm like, Lilith's touched on the fact that liberal feminists tend to live in a bit of a dream world and not really see the world as it is. Um, So if we accept that porn has infiltrated society, um, even women who are anti-porn have been affected somewhat by um, the presence of the porn industry, how do you think we can navigate as women um, you know, and also men as well. How can we navigate um, a world that is, you know, full of porn? That is, you know, with all the with all the um, like positive like messaging around porn. How can we navigate that um, and develop healthy relationships with ourselves and our sexualities? Right. Well, the answer, of course is a feminist revolution, radical feminist revolution, but that's not going to happen tomorrow, okay? And meanwhile, you have to live in this world, okay? So first of all, I would say absolutely, we have to reboot radical feminism till it becomes the major form of feminism, no question. But meanwhile, the really question is why are we doing this work and this collective action? How are young women going to live in a world where they do want to be partnered? They want someone to love and for the... And, you know, them to love somebody and 
that person loved them. I get that. So I think, first of all, shows like yours are absolutely crucial, which is why I'm going to advertise the hell out of not just this show, but other ones. But I think one of the things that we said is that you look for the few good men out there and you're going to have to really train them into this. And if they put up a, a real fight, you have to walk away and do that. But, you know, in a way, the question you're asking me is like, how do I avoid polluted air? You can't. That's why we need, you know, uh, governmental organizations, and you know, kind of a joke, but to cut down pollution. You can't do this alone. And it breaks my heart to not be able to say, here's the 10 easy steps to do this. Because I know the pain that women are in. And I know the frustrations. And I know, because I saw it day in, day out in my classes, you know, and I felt so much for these young women. It was so painful to hear their stories. So, I mean, I think I'm looking to people like you to say this is that maybe let's try and think about your program, doing websites, having uh, Facebook pages where we can be of support, where women have questions about how do I get my boyfriend to stop using porn? And if we say, you know, if you've talked about it, get rid of him. Women need to get a reality check because this is one big mass gaslighting society. And you already think you're going mad because the guy that you're having sex with said, you know, my last girlfriend loved it up the ass, what's wrong with you? You've got your academics saying this. You've got the media saying this. I mean, I'm amazed that young women stay sane in this world, given what's coming at them. And this is what makes me the most upset and the most crazy. You know, feminism was fought for by our foremothers. They really did. And now my generation is that generation. And we have an obligation to our daughters to make this world a livable place. And I think we have sold you short. We have completely sold you short. And I just wish I had the answer because I know what life is like. But the only thing I can say to women is, you know, read as much as you can from the anti-porn feminist position and never sell yourself short. Never settle. You are too important. You are too precious. And you deserve more than to settle for some guy who's not going to treat you the way that you deserve to be treated. Absolutely not. And you know what? One day you will look in the mirror if you do that and you'll say, who have I become and who am I? Please don't do that to yourself. Please. Thank you so much. Do you have anything that you'd like to uh, plug or promote on our podcast before I do our outro? Or Oh, wait, wait we forgot to add about, ask about Culture Reframe. Oh, right. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, that's what I wanted to ask about because we get parents asking us all the time, like, they're horrified when they find our subreddit and are terrified of what is, you know, how do I, how do I protect my daughter? How do I... Well, we've got the answer. This is one thing we do have some answers to. So we started four years ago. In these four years, we have built the the only programs in the world that helps parents teach their children to be porn resilient and resistant. This is built by multi um, by a multidisciplinary team of pediatricians, nurses, sex health experts, um, sociologists. Um, parent advisors. It's built for parents. We've got two, one for parents of tweens, one for parents of teens. You can go in for five minutes to each one, five hours, five days. It's chock full of great stuff. It's accessible. It's free. We made it free because we wanted to make sure that any parent, irrespective of socioeconomic background, could afford 
it and go in there we've got as much of what we're teaching you step by step is how to have these conversations what we say to parents is you do not have 100 minute conversation you have 101 minute conversations and we've even got scripts on what to have we've laid out the scripts from you kid you kid you kid and we assume that your kid would rather be anywhere else in the world than speaking to you about pornography so we've even got second scripts that tell you if it goes bad how to come back to it so we lay out the groundwork what how to set the scene we have thing a model called compose yourself so if you feel it's, it, you're getting aggravated shut the conversation down go and read the the culture reframe compose yourself to calm yourself down go back and do a do-over and we say above all never shame or blame your kid if you want to shame and blame anyone you shame and blame the porn industry you shame and blame the culture that has allowed this to happen and the porn industry to hijack our kids so this is for parents and it took each one took about a year and a half to write it's been peer-reviewed over and over again and it is accessible lots of great videos you can show your kids you can sit with so this is a, our gift to the world it's a parents and caregivers and in fact it's now being translated it's been translated into turkish we're talking with people to translate it into spanish portuguese it's being used in sweden norway iceland brazil turkey south america everywhere you go and it's being used by also because it's so robust it's being used by doctors pediatricians nurses sexual health experts and in October the 2nd and 3rd and everyone should mark the calendar down because it, and it will be on the Culture Reframe website how to get onto it. We are doing the first ever by Zoom conference on how to teach sex ed with a porn critical lens. Amazing. I'm going to put that in my Google calendar right now. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to have you. We'd Actually, you know what? It would be great for you to do a workshop. Would you do that? Yes. Yes. Okay, I'm putting I, you're right, right. I, we'll get in touch after this because you, I think what you could talk about would be so important in your experiences. So I'm going to put you down for a workshop. So for everyone listening out there, this is the first ever conference where we are going to look at, and not just school-based sex ed, but all types of sex ed. How do you take, because everyone's teaching sex ed as if we're living in the 20th century. We don't. We live in a society which is porn-fueled. By the time kids get to sex ed, if they ever do, they've already got their sexual template formed by porn. So how do we teach sex ed in the real world right now in a pornified culture? So we've got speakers from all over the world. We're going to have breakout sessions. It's going to be fabulous. So, And you're speaking. This is it. This is so great. Yes, so excited for it. Yeah. And this was wonderful. I have to say, this was such fun. How, what can I say? It was just wonderful speaking to you. And I just want to applaud you for your work, really. You've made my day. I mean, I got this email from somebody I'd never heard of before and thought, you know, I'll do it. Well, I'm so happy I did it because you're doing the most wonderful work and you're, you're keeping so many young women sane. Do you know that? It's fantastic. I salute you for your work. Thank you so much, Professor Dines. You well, call me Gail, absolute... please. We're on first name <laughs> terms <Gail>. now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so bad that you're so formal. <laughs> I don't know in Britain like We're some I, I mean like some like um academics get really uppity about titles I don't know oh no I never allow my students to call me professor or that, that puts a barrier between you and them you see I hate that yeah but England's more formal we both know that I've been in the states now for 30 odd years so I've become less formal you know I still miss by the way 
um, sticky toffee pudding. Oh my gosh, yes. I've had that today with um, some good ice cream. Do you not have it in the, do you not have it in the States? No, no. And I, oh my gosh, I'll send... Oh, it's fantastic. I'll send, I'll send you some, Gail. I'll send you some. <laughs> I was just about to say, payment for this is sticky toffee pudding. I'll send you that's some. I'll send you some. I'll mail it to you. That's such... Oh, that's so unfortunate. Well, I'll, look, I'll look forward to it. Believe me, I will look forward to it. <laughs> and that's our show. Please... Check out our Twitter at FemDatStrat as well as our Patreon, Patreon forward slash The Female Dating Strategy, as well as our website, TheFemaleDatingStrategy.com. Thanks for listening, queens. And for all you porn sick, limp dick scrotes out there, die bad. See you next week. <laughs> cool. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>